But if you can find those stories that illustrate those core truths about what's happening in our world and what needs to happen, people really get motivated. And so I kind of went out of journalism into advertising and then back to journalism. And it's all sort of the same thing. If you kind of tell people what to think, they won't listen. If you tell them a really compelling story that they resonate with, they can't help but listen. CEO reads 60 books per year, and many attribute their success to this habit of constant learning. This is the difference between those who actualize and those who fail. This automization of their learning, this 1% better every day. On the MentorBox podcast, we're making it easy for you to build and maintain that same habit, the same type of constant lifelong learning as those CEOs, simply by listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and tune in for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and every Friday. And if you want to dig deeper into what our incredible guests teach, make sure to go to mentorbox.com and become a member today. Everyone, welcome to the MentorBox Podcast. You are listening because you are a person of action. But action, of course, must be supported by deep knowledge. Education is a deliberate, lifelong pursuit, and you know the fastest, most effective way to learn is from the masters themselves. By harnessing the power of the world's top innovators and thought leaders, you too can effect positive change for your community, business, and the world at large. That's why today we're speaking with Jonah Sachs. Jonah has worked as a journalist, designer, and entrepreneur. He most recently penned the book, Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. This book is a collection of research, anecdotes, and tight rationale that encourage readers to embrace a creative process that defies habit and convention. We discuss why fear should be used as fuel, which people are most likely to be the sources of successful creative thought, and how to pursue unsafe thinking in a safe manner. If you want to keep up with the rapidly changing states of tech, economics, and culture, listen closely to this one. Enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Mentor Box podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, content coordinator of Mentor Box, and today I am joined by Jonas Sachs. He's the author of Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Jonah, thank you so much for being with us in the studio today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we just did a, a full shoot um, on this book, Unsafe Thinking. It's actually the second book that you've written. What was the, the previous one? First one's called Winning the Story Wars, uh, Why Those Who Tell and Live the Best Stories Will Rule the Future. Mm-hmm. And you are a journalist, so you have a lot of background in storytelling and reporting and the like. Can you give us a bit of an intro as to what you've kind of learned you know, doing your reporting and, and how, you, how that's driven you to write these two books? Yeah, I started journalism when I was in college. And um, for me, there's always been this dynamic of trying to get people to engage with stories uh, that are going to change their mind. The stories aren't just ways of going out and sort of observing what is happening in the world, but stories are a way of kind of illustrating important points, especially for social change, where if you just sort of get up on a soapbox and tell people what to think, 
it's just not going to influence them. It's not going to change anything. And spouting facts will never have that sort of impact. Mm -hmm. But if you can find those stories that illustrate those core truths about what's happening in our world and what needs to happen, people really get motivated. And so I kind of went out of journalism into advertising and then back to journalism. And it's all sort of the same thing. If you kind of tell people what to think, they won't listen. If you tell them a really compelling story that they resonate with, they can't help but listen. And so that's, you know, I keep taking that away. Anytime you want to influence someone, you know, you got to find that real story and, and tell it in a way that they don't expect. Mm-hmm. And in unsafe thinking, there are five principles in the book. Uh, can you list them really quickly? There's daring, learning, challenging, rebelling, and imagining. Mm-hmm. And these all come together to kind of do that same thing, you know, create a narrative that is, or maybe not create a narrative, but come up with ideas that challenge people to think differently and to act differently uh, in perhaps an unsafe way. Is that what you're ultimately getting at in the book? Yeah, I really want people to see that if the world is changing around them, that they've got to learn to change themselves and that just doesn't come easily. And the only way to really do it is to get into those places that feel uncomfortable to us. So a lot of people might be like unsafe thinking, that's how you create a crazy idea that challenges everyone around you. But that really starts by challenging yourself and you know, using those parts of your brain and your psychology that you just haven't used in a while, that don't feel comfortable, and getting out of some of those ruts and those patterns. I found actually that journalism, journalism was really helpful for that for me as well, because you just have to wind up going to places and talking to people that you have to get over a lot of fear in order to do that. And you have to push them and challenge them to get more real than they really want to be. A lot of ways, it's like now turning that principle on myself and rewriting my own story and put, getting into those places of just discomfort for me have been really generative. Um, and that's what this book's about in a lot of ways. I see. And the reason I I opened up with a question about journalism is because we discovered amid the shoot that we were doing that we actually have a very similar background in journalism. I, you know, student newspaper, you were uh, Wesleyan. I was at Boston University. And um, some of the bigger stories that we each published were actually on racial profiling. I just want to ask a little bit about your, you know, your career as a student journalist to start just for for funsies here, because that's a nice little connection that we have. So at the newspaper, you were editor in chief. You had a lot of different roles. Did you go to school thinking that you wanted to be a journalist or to even work on the newspaper? You know, I always wanted some ability to have my voice heard by as many people as possible. That was just <laughs> always what I wanted. And so I played with different ways of doing that. You know, I thought I might want to be a fiction writer. I thought I might want to go into TV. But I found in writing the, a newspaper for a really small community that I was also a member of. And, you know, every I'd work all night, go to sleep, and I'd wake up the next morning, go to the, uh, wake up the next afternoon, go to the dining hall, and everyone's got the newspaper in their hand, what I had written. And that made me feel like a true part of that community. It also opened me up for a tremendous amount of criticism. And it was it was scary at times covering some of these really difficult issues at a very political university. But yeah, I've always wanted that ability to share my thoughts as widely as possible. And I found that journalism was just a great way to do that. You kinda you kinda don't make it about yourself. You make it about other people, but you still have that that megaphone to 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 share what's going on in your mind. That's exactly what I would say about my own entry into the student newspaper B. I was like, I wanna you know, I want to be a part of this community in a way that contributes thoughts and ideas and a voice. And I think we also both started as sports journalists. And I, I kind of thought at some point, you know, I'd rather do something more impactful than the sort of regular monitoring of, you know, a team that's out there. I want to think about the more volatile changes in the community. And that's when I ended up doing the reporting that I just mentioned before. When I ended up doing a lot of this reporting, I really did 
change myself as well. I learned very quickly that going out and asking people tough questions and trying to get them to be more real, as you said, is, is a really big challenge. And there's a lot to learn from that perspective of, of learning how to ask the right questions and who to actually ask those right questions. You know, maybe the person that your editor sends you to immediately isn't the one that's going to give you the answers, but you have to figure out, you know, exactly how to get, you know, that, that nugget that's going to make that story real. And from what I see, a lot of these principles very much apply to the principles that are in unsafe thinking. I think, you know, thinking, I don't think outside the box is, is the right way to think about it, but reframing how you see what's normal and the sort of institutions and the circumstances and the conventions that you're acting within. Journalism is that fourth estate that ultimately keeps government and, you know, industry in check in a lot of ways. And I feel like that perspective of being a journalist really contributes to that unsafe thinking. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. When you were talking about that, it it brought forth this idea that if you've ever done investigative journalism, you know that the closer and closer you get to the truth, actually, the more you're pissing people off, (laughs) the more, uh, you know, unsavory situations you're putting yourself into and the more resistance you feel. And, um, you know, you want to back away constantly and there's this desire to not keep pushing it. Um, But you kind of have a compass inside of you saying the more edgy this is getting probably the closer to the truth I'm getting. And in many ways, that's the same thing with all creativity, which is, you know, I write about in the book that, you know, anxiety is something that we want to pull away from. It's a, it's a signal that we're getting ourselves in danger, but top creative thinkers really reframe that anxiety and says, it's kind of like a homing device. The more anxious I'm feeling, that may be a sign that I'm getting closer and closer to my creative edge. I might be coming up with a bigger idea um, that's never been tried before. If you're still compelled by it, but it's making you nervous, that's a really good sign that you should be considering it as a, as a possibility if you're in a world where, you know, what you're doing is no longer working. So, um, you know, it's really that self-coaching towards, you know, not being crazy and just taking every risk you possibly can, but moving towards those things that scare us most, you know, that's where growth really happens. You use the phrase fear as fuel yeah. in the book and in the in the uh, the shoot that we just did. Can you give us some anecdotes or maybe one of your favorite examples of somebody who did exactly that, who was an unsafe thinker? There's a few that you mentioned in the book. Yeah, my, my favorite with that one is, you know, the story of Mahatma Gandhi, who, you know, is just the kind of person that we think of as probably the most courageous person who lived in the 20th century, you know, a guy with uh, no power who took on the most powerful empire in the world. And, you know, how does someone do that? When I looked deeper into his life, I found that he was so beset by fear that he could not even open his mouth in a crowd. He had to resign as the uh, chair of the London Vegetarian Society because he couldn't make a speech even on that stage. He went to India. He couldn't talk in a, in a courtroom because he was too afraid he'd be laughed at, which he was laughed at for being silent. And every time he moved away from those things that made him afraid, the smaller and smaller his life became. And he said the most creative incident in his life was when he got kicked off a train in South Africa, where he had fled to get away from his anxiety, got kicked off a train. And that night on a frozen platform, he had been rejected for being, you know, for for being colored, as they called it in South Africa. He finally made a deal with himself that he was going to move towards the things that frightened him. And he said that was the very beginning of everything that happened for him. And he never stopped feeling that anxiety throughout his life, but he started using it as a compass to let him know that he might be um, 
getting towards more and more change. And uh, he still was very shy, actually, even though he you know, spoke to millions, he still in, in social situations struggled. But he reframed that fear as fuel. And this idea of reframing uh, is you know, a key part of, of mindfulness, of being aware of our feelings and deciding what to do with them, which is key for, for innovators. The term is unsafe thinking, and you've explained it a bit already, but a lot of people at first thought are going to think, you know, what kind of safety are we talking about here? I think we've, we've covered that, but I'm sure there are many situations that we could come up with where unsafe thinking or something akin to that is actually potentially dangerous. I mean, you can take risks serious enough, you know, within a business, fiscal risks, you know, innovative risks that could really, you know, bring things to the ground, even just social risks. Like some of those can ultimately be dangerous. How do you advise people to gauge, you know, how unsafely they're thinking and, you know, temper that in? Or, or how do you advise they go about that? You know, it, it really comes down to being open to reality and sort of being willing to see things as clearly as you possibly can without letting your ego and your fears get in the way. So when someone comes up with a wild idea that they feel really good about, um, they feel really interested in trying something new, the idea is not is to still have a scientific mindset towards it, to, to, to try to practice it in small ways, to test it in the world and take feedback from the environment. If we have a kind of counter-conventional idea that we attach our egos to um, and we want to push it you know, as fast as we can out into the world, we certainly can, can run into all kinds of failure because we don't want to hear that it's not good enough. Most counterintuitive ideas, for instance, are, you know, they're counterintuitive for a reason. They're not <laughs> going to work. But the best ideas come from people who really kind of trust their gut and really tr listen to their intuition, but then test it out in the world. And so many, many of the innovators I talked to were, had a real scientific mindset and also a kind of wild creativity, um, making small bets on things that they felt could work and not investing their whole egos and careers in having it to work having to have it work. So this is essentially that first principle of learning is really coming to understand that reality, right? Yeah, is, is, is to see that, you know, you may have something special and new to offer and the world may, you know, not be interested in it. Therefore, you know, we need to be kind of really curious and really open to seeing how our ideas play in the world. And that feels unsafe, you know, because we build our reputations and our place in the world by always being right. In the sciences, it's really interesting. There's all these problems in the science, sciences where no one wants to publish a paper where they investigated something interesting, but it didn't turn out to be true. Mm -hmm. So there's a tremendous amount of information is lost because we run all these studies and then people bury them. 65% of studies that don't find positive results get buried, which is crazy because that's so much information that we're losing. Um, but we have this idea in our society that we always need to be right. And uh, the idea is actually to be wrong quite a bit, uh, but not to sink yourself in the process. And that's where storytelling comes back again. You know, leaders who tell stories of productive failures that they've created certainly allow people around them to take more risks and chances. Mm -hmm. And you talked about entrenchment today as well. Can you explain what that concept is? I think it's relevant here. Yeah, the idea of entrenchment is sort of the more that we learn at first, the better we get at doing anything. But then there's a certain point at which the more that we learn, uh, the more locked in a single way of doing it we are. And so, you know, experts who 
really attach uh, their sense of self to what they know. They greet new ideas not as like more fuel for their learning, but they greet them as, you know, potential threats to the way that they see the world. If you've been on TV and you've stood for a single idea, you might see every situation as just sort of a new flavor of that idea. And it can lead to all kinds of hilarious and terrible blindness. You know, one study showed that experts are worse than dart throwing monkeys at predicting the future. You know, that shouldn't be. But that is uh, where we've gotten ourselves to because people are more interested in knowing than, you know, exploring and making that small tweak can really change your approach to the world. Mm -hmm. I would argue that a good example of this is uh, Brotopia, Emily Chang. We were just talking about this and we actually had her in a couple of weeks ago and we just did a podcast with her as well. You know, Silicon Valley, the companies in tech these days are very much, you know, male dominated. And there's, there seems to be a bit of entrenchment as to, you know, what success in that sphere looks like, what a good employee looks like and, you know, what good ideas come from and, and where, capital is flowing to and from it's you know male dominated generally white men passing it on to white men and i think that's a a good example of this and in her book in brotopia emily chang has a series of ideas that she posits to help change this and a lot of it requires a lot of creativity to kind of break down the institutions as they already exist and because they're so massive it's really tough so i want to ask you about creativity because imagining is is one of those five principles and one of the most popular questions that MentorBox gets um, just, you know, on our sort of platforms and on our forums is how do I amp up my creativity? And this is a really tough question. You know, what books should I read to become more creative? How do I think more creatively? And I always just want to say, you know, read more fiction, read, read more things, read more in general. But since you've done all of this research and you've seen these folks at work and succeeding, what would you say to that? So couple ideas. There's a tremendous amount of research on creativity and science on creativity. We used to think that creativity was really more like intelligence, where it's like a fixed trait. And now we know that's something that really can be learned and can be expanded or contracted based on sort of how we live our lives and the environments we put ourselves in. So one thing is that we need as many ideas as possible to have good breakthrough ideas. This is kind of a core principle. It's called blind variation selective retention, where geniuses, creative geniuses do not have better ideas. They just have more of them and they feel comfortable in generating and taking in many, many more ideas. So one thing to be more creative, uh, one of my favorite unsafe thinkers uh, is John Cleese of Monty Python. And mm -hmm. he talks about how, you know, it's really... When, when he was doing Monty Python, he would wait till the very last minute to execute. He would spend many, much more time in the ideation phase than any of his, his partners, just coming up with many, 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 many more ideas and pushing off that fear that if he didn't get right to executing an idea soon, he wouldn't have enough time to do it. And in fact, he often didn't have enough time to do it well, but the ideas were so original and unusual that, you know, they, they often worked really well. So one thing is just to, you know, calm down, slow down, try not to have a provisional first idea because we often pollute ourselves when we attach to any single idea first and generate as many ideas as possible. I think before you continue, I think a lot of people push back on this, especially in Silicon Valley, where it's it's moving so rapidly, as you say in the book many times, you know, it's a it's a rapidly changing world that we're in. And we advocate for trying many things at MentorBox, you know, see, see what works and what people need and what helps them and, and do a lot of testing, as you have said. But I still think that it's so important to be working with this crazy, 
rapidity with with such speed that I just really want to emphasize this point of, you know, kind of taking a breath and really trying to figure out what is going to work most and best. Yeah, you definitely need to try many things. But you also need to consider many more things as well before you get into the trying. So yeah, there's, there is a sort of... Um, the, the bias for action can can overwhelm us a little bit. And at times uh, we may have gone too far in that direction, I think a lot of the science shows. So that's one way to be more creative. To get better at new ideas is really to step outside of our areas of expertise. And you know, I, I talk a lot about doing things that you suck at. Like when you go into worlds that you are unfamiliar and uncomfortable with, you get all kinds of new ideas that you can then bring back to that world that you're good at. So like if you're you know working in, in, in tech and you go out and you take dance classes is something you're bad at both it helps humble you so you get into a community where you're a beginner again and you lose some of that bravado but also you um you know you get new analogies that you can bring back to your work and then finally um you know i've done some work on this gender and tech stuff as well and i've you know found that vcs will invest $34 in men for every $1 they invest in, in women. Even when confronted with the information that women tend to do better in businesses and startups, uh, they can't change. And when I talk to a bunch of them about the only way they actually can change is by bringing women onto the team to, that makes the investment decisions. They cannot shift their brains enough without changing who they're collaborating with. So if you want to get more creative, I would just say, hang out with more creative people, bring people on that, that you the kind of people that you don't collaborate with often widen that, that scope of people you collaborate with because you can't generate that many new ideas yourself unless you change the people you're generating them with. Mm -hmm. And this sounds like challenging, if you will, that, that principle. So kind of challenging the norm of who's working on the project, how you're thinking about the project, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of interesting data shows that the lowest people in the totem pole in an organization are often the ones who kind of have the most original outlying ideas. Um, so yeah, you know, take more time to listen to those people that you, that don't sit at the center of power in the organization um, and get their ideas because those will probably be the ones that you're not hearing and might have the most kind of creative gold in them. Hey, I hate to interrupt this conversation with Jonah Sachs, but I wanted to let you know where you can learn more about his five principles to unsafe thinking. He did a full workshop featuring anecdotes and great research on what makes a good creative process. And as usual, he recorded this just for MentorBox Online. To access that, plus tons more, go to MentorBox.com. Okay, back to the show. Do you have any examples of those people that are, you know, the farthest from the, the power locusts that, that actually have come up with big ideas and made a change in a big company or in a big organization, anything like that? Yeah, I spoke to this guy named Barry Marshall, who is a doctor in Australia, and uh, he was trying to solve the problem of of ulcers. And he had this idea that perhaps ulcers were caused by bacteria, not by stress and smoking, which was the conventional wisdom. But he was like an outlier doctor far in Western Australia, where he had no kind of access to the medical community. And he started prescribing antibiotics to all of his patients. You know, there's like, a, you know, hundreds of millions of people in the world were on medication that didn't really cure ulcers, but kind of a lifetime medication. He started prescribing antibiotics and he saw that all of his patients were getting well. So he started going out to the medical journals and no one really wanted to hear what he had to say. They laughed at him. Uh, he was too far out of the mainstream. So eventually what he did, he wasn't given any permission to test on humans. So what he did was he tested on himself. He took the bacteria that he thought was causing it, put it in some beef broth, drank it and infected himself awfully. His wife finally made him take antibiotics right before he got ulcers, but he got to that pre-ulcer stage. 
National Enquirer picked up his story. They were the only ones who wanted to report it on, report on it. But once the National Enquirer did, then the New York Times did. Then he got an NIH grant. Then he won the Nobel Prize for curing ulcers. You know, so these big institutions tend to really ignore people who don't have the right kind of credentials or are sitting on the outside. But, you know, he said that if he was part of the medical establishment, he would have self-censored earlier on as well. Mm -hmm. But it was really by being so far from the centers of power that he was able to both have this crazy idea and then have nothing to lose. I mean, you're really not supposed to experiment on yourself like that. So like he did that because he was an outsider. So, you know, there's an example of, you know, who are those people in our organizations who, you know, have these ideas, don't know how to get them heard and are kind of bold enough to, to try to speak up when, when, when they do, you know, they're really worth listening to. You're also saying that leaders should try their best to foster the inclusion of these voices when they're deciding on projects, creating products, whatever it is, right? Yeah, you know, there's this ironic thing about unsafe thinking, which is that, you know, organizations really need to make it safe enough to get unsafe. That's didn't sort of make sense to me at first. And I was thinking that a lot of these sort of like fast moving creative cultures just don't have a lot of structure and they just kind of go for it, like kind of like Uber maybe. But, you know, then you see when people inside of a company are not really valued and safe, they start to sort of shut down and the whole thing starts to crumble even when you have a really charismatic, fast-moving, creative leader. So, you know, if you want to unleash the best creativity in your company, you do need to allow for rule breakers and iconoclasts and, you know, and outside the um, norm behavior. But that really actually requires everyone feeling safe and valuable and heard. And behaviors that undo that are really corrosive to creativity in kind of surprising ways. So how do you advise people start then? Let's let's think about somebody who's actually beginning, you know, a startup, just created a product or a service. How do you suggest that they develop a team and, you know, create the structure of their organization early on? Do you have any ideas for those foundational principles? Yeah, I mean, first, there's a lot of um, evidence that we should, you know, stop doing that thing, which is, you know, hiring for cultural fit of, you know, interviewing people that just, you know, sort of feel right to the, yeah. to the team and just like, hey, we love this person. We could really work well with them. You know, two things happen in that. One is you get a kind of monoculture of people who, you know, maybe are likely, you know, racially and gender the same, but also just cognitively the same. And it's shown time and again that cognitively diverse teams outperform uh, creatively. It's really? such a powerful thing. There is yeah, research on that? Yeah, a lot of research on that. And, and one really interesting research took, you know, a bunch of random people that were cognitively diverse and then a bunch of experts who were cognitively similar backgrounds and, and worldviews. And the totally random people outperformed the experts uh, in their field because they just were able to kind of come up with different ideas that weren't, weren't, weren't easy to see. So, you know, stop hiring for cultural fit and bring people into the organization that, you know, you know, will see the world differently, that will challenge you and start doing things like, you know, don't just incentivize results, incentivize smart risk taking behaviors. Um, you know, leaders should be speaking last and not coming to every meeting, setting the agenda, but really seeing what rises up from the room before, before weighing in. And, you know, uh, one interesting idea is this is like that I that I heard from a couple sources, including the the woman who runs Burning Man now is, you know, you want to minimize the number of rules within your organization that if you have uh, the rules that keep us secure and working well are needed. But all the uh, kind of other rules that seep their way in should be kind of pushed out whenever possible. So if you have these these, you know, cognitively diverse cultures that that reward things other than results that also have sort of like the least number of rules they possibly can have, you know, creativity tends to blossom. Those are three things that we actually can do pretty easily when we're starting. Mm -hmm. 
this brings up one rub for me, which is how do you, you know, safely assess what good creative risks are? And I guess I'm, I'm getting back to that question that I asked before, just, you know, how do you sort of moderate the risks that you're taking? But at the end of the day, there's, there aren't really metrics for, you know, oh, was that like, I mean, after something happens and succeeds, you can say, oh, that was a really good example of unsafe thinking. But it sounds like ultimately the point is, is to think in that way that denies convention, which means that there may not be safe metrics or, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of research and studies that do show evidence that this sort of thinking works, but it still sounds like you need to create a new paradigm and then, you know, test. I guess that's where the testing comes in, perhaps. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. That I think there's, there's even more to it than that, which is, you know, first of all, unsafe thinking is really helpful in situations where safe thinking has become dangerous, right? Okay. So when we like, okay, we and recognize... There's a lot of that today. There's I a lot of say. that, right. Yeah. Yeah, you don't need to just go and take risks just for the sake of being like, let's take more risks. You know, we need more risks in this organization. If something's really working yeah. and you're clear that it's working, it should not be disrupted. But there's so many times where we're like, you know, as I was in my own business, when I was running an advertising agency, seeing that like, if we keep doing this thing, even though it's working today, it will stop working tomorrow. You know, the real risk was not changing. And that doesn't mean that we should just go and try any risky thing to make that change. But um, those are the places to, you know, to focus first, where, you know, where the status quo you recognize will no longer work. There's also something called a psychological principle called risk portfolios. And that means that um, we can only tolerate so much risk at once. I spoke to an inventor at Google X and he told me that um, when his work is really risky, he'll go home and just like watch Netflix and hang out and do nothing. But when his work is very uh boring, he'll find all kinds of ways to take risks in his personal life. And so I thought that was interesting and kind of indicative of how companies need to run too, which is like, find those places in which the status quo is the most dangerous and apply risk-taking behavior there while minimizing risk elsewhere. If a company is taking too many, you know, especially a small company is taking too many risks at once, that creates, you know, sort of overload, anxiety overload that's, that grinds a company down and also might expose them to too much risk. So um, how do you minimize risk in most departments when you're going and taking one big risk and so you can stay focused on that one risk that you're taking? Um, so those are some of the principles, that, you know, of course there is no prescription for like, how do you break out and do things risk-free? Um, but yeah, you know, measure, measure what's happening, do small bets, get out in the world and, you know, do it when you have to, in the places where you really have to. Mm-hmm. I think risk portfolio, that's a really good concept to, to leave people on to finish off with. Before we finish up, I do want to plug in one more call to action for everybody. I am a big advocate of journalistic experience, which it sounds like you may be as well. But again, big believer in that sort of fourth estate, you know, keeping an eye on institutions. And I think that's a really good way of identifying where, you know, safe thinking might actually have become dangerous when you have that outside perspective of reporting and you're working on, you know, getting close to that, that edge or that truth. That's when you, that's when you can identify that, oh, this institution that's been operating by this status quo for so long is suddenly starting to, you know, show some flaws. And I think government and Hollywood and, um, tech are like three really big examples that more recently have started to show or you know become more transparent which, with what's happening internally. And journalism taught me a lot about how to think about what is normal and whether that's okay. And I think there's so many different ways to get into journalism to, you know, you can blog, you don't need a, a card to be a journalist. You don't graduate from journalism school like, like I did communication school and get a card that says you can now ask people questions. 
you can just investigate on your own. Like that's a thing that you can do, right? And do you agree that people should in some way do this sort of research where they're actually kind of putting themselves in the space and talking to the people? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that everybody should be a journalist, but I think this, this is a very powerful process for a mindset, anybody. if you will. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, I think it's a mindset. Like when you have a curiosity or a problem, you know, don't just read books and sit and think, you know, get out into the world, observe what's happening, ask a lot of questions yeah. and question what people are telling you and go deeper and deeper if you possibly can. Because again, it goes back to like, it's in those stories, those real things that are happening, not just the theory where you actually can start to learn. So yeah, I think that, that there is a lot of power in that. And of course, yeah, these big institutions, you know, can't handle the, the need alone. And we do need as many citizen journalists as we can get who are, you know, giving the real story of what's out there. Absolutely. Great. I'll let you uh, take it away. If you want to give one more you know, invitation to have our listeners reach out to you, Jonah, um, your website, the book Unsafe Thinking is this book, but you've written one more as well, right? Before this. Yeah. So um, Unsafe Thinking and Winning the Story Wars are available wherever books are sold. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm at Jonas Sachs on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn um, and JonasSachs.com. And yeah, the book launched last week. So Great. I'm excited to get out there and get out in the world and uh, hear from the people who read it. So Perfect. let me know what you think. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Let Jonah know what you think of the book. Be sure to pick it up and we'll uh, check you out on the next podcast. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.